This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell, and a fortune has been made in the United States from fast food. So what's the crime behind fast food? Well, there's the obvious crime of selling food to the public that is not good for us. As the National Institutes of Health concludes, fast foods typically contain multiple chemicals and synthetic ingredients. They are calorically dense, highly flavored, and nutritionally barren. Fast foods typically contain extra corn syrup, sugar, artificial sweeteners, salt, coloring agents, and other potentially disease-promoting chemicals. But that's far from the only crime fast food has been engaged in during its 100-year-plus history. First, there was its original crime of refusing to serve black people, which wasn't a crime at the time, but morally and ethically, it always has been. And I did not know uh, that it was excluded from African Americans, but should have assumed when the first fast food franchise was called White Castle, which spawned a competitor called White Tower. Yes, from the start, fast food was a whites only as whites only as any Woolworth lunch counter. Eventually, however, white suburban communities began shunning the national franchises, which changed fast food from excluding black Americans to fast food exploiting African Americans. Sure, black franchisees got in on the act, and in movies like Coming to America, fast food is depicted as a way for members of the black community to not only give back to their neighbors, but also for personal financial success. It's the story of American meritocracy, that talent, effort, and achievement can lead to success rather than that success being based on wealth or social class, which is a typical American myth. That's just simply not the case. As to get today's guest argues, fast food is, in fact, anti-black. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with Na Oyo E. Kwate. She, she is the author of White Burger's Black Cash Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation. Na Oyo is associate professor, jointly appointed in the Department of Africana Studies and the Department of Human Ecology. A psychologist by training, she has wide-ranging interests in racial inequality and African-American health. Her research has centered primarily on the ways in which urban-built environments reflect racial inequalities in the United States and how racism, directly and indirectly, affects American, uh, African-American health. Her research has been funded by grants from the National Institutes of Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and by fellowships from the uh, Smithsonian Institution, among others. Na Oyo is also author of Burgers in Blackface, Anti-Black Restaurants Then and Now, as well as editor of The Street, a photographic field guide to American inequality, which I really, really want to see. She, You can follow her on Twitter at Professa Kwate, that's P-R-O-F-E-S-S-A-H, Kwate, K-W-A-T-E, her last name. For those of you who might be a bit confused because on our most recent show, we said our guest today would be Catherine Jan Ebright of the Brennan Center, who authored the study Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage war under the radar. Well, Catherine had to change her schedule, and she will now be our final guest for the week instead, so she'll be coming up after Na Oyo Kwate.
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, what's new about you, sir? How are you? Hey, Chuck. Doing well. Been watching a lot of tennis. <laughs> really? Yeah, because I live by a tennis court now. Oh, so you're right not like a big fan of tennis on TV. Uh, I've never seen it on TV in my life, <laughs> but I see it every day and hear it going kapok. Really? I thought it was part of the ambient music I was listening to. It wasn't. What was the ambient music you were playing before the show? I listened to this um, radio station NTS in London, and they've got a sub-channel called uh, Slow Focus. I can't get enough of it. Really? mainlining it. It's giving me all kinds of slow focus. Slow focus at NTS. So uh, are you sure they're not playing pickleball? They might be playing pickleball. I look out there. There's dogs, too. There's people uh, on skateboards. It's a pretty loosely defined tennis court. Tennis court area. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, so, uh, I'm your, as I was saying, uh, producing today is uh, Dan Hill. Uh, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, who would you like to see indicted? And why? Who would you like to see indicted and why? And if anybody says pickleball players, Dan will agree with you. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive. Featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell, again, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show. We got an email from listener David C. during our conversation with Rasha Al-Akidi. While she was describing her life in Iraq prior to the 2003 launching of the war on Iraq and throughout the war's first several years, David has a guest suggestion. He writes, hi, Chuck and the This Is Hell team. I would like to suggest getting Dr. Mike Amaskua to talk about his amazing new book, Making Mexican Chicago, From Post-War Settlement to the Age of Gentrification. He's an amazing historian, and I think the themes of segregation, private property, real estate, Latinx, working class politics, and community activism would be a great topic for This Is Hell, especially at this current moment in Chicago politics. You can check out a shorter piece he wrote recently at Zocalo Public Square to get an idea about the book. Peace, David from California. Uh, the article by Dr. Mike Amezcua, that's A-M-E-Z-C-U-A, that David links to at Zocalo publicsquare.org is titled The Struggle for a Latino Place in Chicago. Like their black neighbors, Mexican-Americans fought for decades to access restricted housing and urban space. Amos Kua writes, During the 19s, and this is really fascinating, during the 1960s, the Mexican community built commercial, cultural, and political institutions right up to Ashland Avenue's color line. By the late 1960s, the avenue was home to the headquarters of both the Mexican-American Democratic Organization and the Mexican Chamber of Commerce, two key organizations that would build relationships not with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights movement, but instead with the all-powerful Richard J. Daley machine, seeking political inclusion no matter how minor the concessions the city power brokers offered. That push for limited inclusion won out over more direct participation in the Chicago Freedom Movement, or at least over a more forceful challenge to segregation and the violence of white supremacy. This history of Latino placemaking is far less known than the civil rights struggle led by Dr. King, but it remains an important context for later developments in Chicago's urban and political history. 
Perhaps most notably, the Latino community in Chicago helped secure the 1983 election of Harold Washington, Chicago's first black mayor, whose support came from a broad multiracial alliance for which shared housing discrimination and political neglect were key catalysts for action. Today, Chicago's Southwest Side is a wellspring of grassroots organizing by young progressives and challenge the current challenges the current political economic system that keeps working class non-white Chicagoans struggling. And on any given day along the area's commercial corridors, one can hear regional Mexican music blasting from giant speakers and see Black Lives Matter signs on storefronts, a far cry from the summer of 1966, when the two, or 1960, yeah, 1966, when the two communities, in spite of shared struggles, stood apart. So I'm really looking forward to checking out this book by Dr. Amaskua. We also got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Jacob G., who is interested in our opening. Now, openings, which I will explain after today's guest. Jake, Jacob writes, hey, I came across the post about the p- podcast producer position and would like to throw my hat in the ring. I'm a filmmaker and video producer mainly, but I assume it will involve a lot of the same things. My first feature film that I directed, edited, and produced just premiered at the Chicago Underground Film Festival this past year and have done various other works similar to that. Let me know if you want to see more or have any questions. Thanks. You can find out more about Jacob at jacobgregor.com. We replied to Jacob and he will be joining us in studio next Monday. We'll have more to say about the producer's position following our talk with Naoyo. But if you are interested, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. Coming up, fast food is racist. We also have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and will tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth as well. Dan, what is Jeff talking about this week? This week, Jeff tacitly testifies the unheard silent testimony of the mute voiceless. Hmm. So I'm telling you, it's going to be a John Cage piece. It's going to be 11 minutes of silence. Can't wait. certain of it. And like I was saying, stay tuned in for some breaking news about the show, which we will be sharing following our guest. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Here in the United States, we absolutely love fast food. In fact, as today's guest argues, it is our national cuisine, for better or for worse, and mostly for worse. But a close reading of its history reveals it's a lot more American than you think, and likely more than anyone wants it, as that history includes one of racial inclusion, followed by or racial exclusion, followed by racial exploitation. Here to help enlighten us on the impact of fast food on the United States and the impact on fast food of everything, joining us is Na Oyo Equate author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Black Exploitation. Naoyo, welcome to This Is Hell. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on our show. This is absolutely fascinating because so often things are just staring us in the face and we don't recognize what impact they have on society writ large. You write, fast food has always been a fundamentally anti-black enterprise. What do you mean by it being a fundamentally anti-black enterprise? Well, it um, in as much as fast food has um, always made blackness problematic, it's always subordinated blackness. It's made, um, you know, it's made the enterprise or it's made blackness uh, antithetical to the enterprise. Um, and then after a good long a number of decades of that, it then turned 
um, when blackness needed to be needed to be brought in and to shore up the bottom line. So it was always uh, uh, an antagonistic an antagonistic relationship in one way or another, either in exclusion and in subordination, or in trying to rely on it to uh, to capture a market when other the, the the white market that it had been focused on uh, all all along was no longer tenable. Are there economic reasons or even financial incentives for fast food places to open up in predominantly black neighborhoods? Because you write fast food is a core part of the American social fabric, but fast food is especially everywhere in black communities. So are there financial incentives or economic reasons for them being in black neighborhoods? Is there, could somebody say, this isn't about race, this is about these financial or economic incentives? Um, yes, well, well, there are two things with that. So one is um, actually one of the main reasons I ended up writing this book was um, we had uh, my co- some colleagues and I had uh, published a paper in a public health journal years ago, it was like 2009, where we looked at the distribution of fast food restaurants across New York City. So the five boroughs and, and, and you know, so not, the, uh, not including Long Island and uh, Westchester in the suburbs, but within the city, we looked at the distribution of where are the restaurants and what are the census uh, demographics and census variables that are related to where where the restaurants are sited. So, you know, I anticipated that where black people were the most concentrated because New York is a very highly segregated city. Um, probably people don't think about that because it's very diverse, but in fact, uh, all that diversity is not necessarily mixed together in the same neighborhoods. But so we anticipated that percent black would be um, the biggest predictor, and it was, and income was not related. So you have you end up with this really strong positive relationship. So the more black people are in a neighborhood, the more fast food there was. Um, but you don't see a relationship with income. So people often think, well, if you see this relationship where there's more fast food in black neighborhoods, it's probably the financial per, um, p- portion of of uh, you know in terms of like the 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 incomes of the people who are living in the neighborhood. So fast food is a is a cheap product. It's positioned to you know uh, low income consumers or people with less money or just the fact that the price point is lower means that people with you know a fewer means would be able to purchase the food. But it's but income was not at all what was driving that relationship. It was it was race, and you can you can see that as well when we would look at high income black neighborhoods versus low income black neighborhoods. Well, if, if it's about income, then the high income neighborhood should have less fast food and they didn't. So it's definitely not that fast food is about the, the economics of the, of the individual uh, consumers. Conversely, it is true that yes, there are incentives for locating uh, in black neighborhoods because the land is easier to acquire, the rent is cheaper. And why is that? That's because of racism. That's because areas that are predominantly black are valued lower. Right, and so we saw that there was a lot of um, reporting in the news of, of late around black homeowners whose homes were appraised lower just because by virtue of them being black. Like that, that kind of devaluation of blackness is what makes makes it easier and cheaper to be in black neighborhoods. So it's not so to say that is therefore to recognize that in fact that's racism. It's not just that oh, it's only financial incentives. The incentives exist because of racism. So and that always leads to the you know the debate over is this about race or is this about class? What do you think people who 
see this as an issue of class? What do you think that they miss, you know, possibly unintentionally in their analysis of fast food when they believe that this is just an issue of class and not an issue of race? I mean, like like I said, the data we we uh, looked at or uh, the stuff we published and there are other studies as well that have shown that uh, it's not about it's not about income or socioeconomic position. It's really about the demographic, the racial demographics of the neighborhoods. And in terms of the history that I'm telling in this in this new book, I mean, th- there is there is not um, you know, there was never a time where uh, fact the fast food industry was focused on capturing, you know, a so-called low income uh, market. If anything, you know, initially they were very much interested in middle-class white domesticity, um, you know, all of this bliss of, and, and idyll of the suburbs and, and, and you know, uh, households of means. So that it doesn't make sense to say that it's really actually about class because if that's true, the way it is about classes in the way that, it, um, should work against what we're actually saying, right? It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not commensurate with what the actual picture of uh, of how fast food operates. Right. Uh, you also point out that with fast food as ubiquitous in black neighborhoods as it is today, it is ironic that black people were once hard pressed to buy a burger in this country. James Baldwin writes in Notes of a Native Son about the time he spent living in New Jersey, working in defense plants, never having experienced the strictures of Jim Crow directly. He was unprepared when ordinary excursions to restaurants provoked racial animus that barred him from patronizing them. In all instances, all he sought was a hamburger and coffee. In the main, what he experienced in 1942 was a pattern of exclusion that extended to potential black fast food consumers across the country. Even when fast food outlets were not denying individual black diners, they were operating in exclusionary white space and remained intensely focused on whiteness for decades. More symbolically, the burger Baldwin called for wasn't all that was at stake. It isn't self-evident that Baldwin and his friend should want burgers. Why not chicken pot pies or ham sandwiches? No, only a hamburger would do that quintessentially American meal. Baldwin was essentially ordering a portion of ordinary American life. Black consumers would not have ready access to such a dish until the 1970s when fast food switched from being a posture of absolute exclusion to a pattern of black exploitation. So until the 1970s, fast food restaurants were whites only. Were they one of the last vestiges of exclusionary whites-only establishments? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, sadly, in in many ways, um, no. In, in as much as they're not, I mean, uh, the kinds of exclusion, you know. So I, the the book is looking at mostly. Um, I mean, it, it's a nationwide story, but it focuses in particular in Chicago, New York, and D.C. And, um, and so it's not, it, it wasn't a focus on the South where, you know, you had Jim Crow written into law and, and, and so, you know, a very different form of uh, exclusion, um, which is not to say that individuals like James Baldwin were, didn't face that kind of discrimination themselves, but meaning, you know, so in, in, these, in these large cities, the kinds of uh, widespread exclusion of whole neighborhoods um, from from access to fast food is something that really continues today. I mean, neighborhoods continue, black neighborhoods continue to be redlined from a wide variety of retail. That's another thing we published on where, you know, you could see that uh, it, uh, this was another study in New York where we looked at all kinds of different retail, you know, sh- um, apparel stores, bookstores, toy stores, different, all kinds of different office supplies, whatever. And black residents would always have to travel farther to get to 
the closest one of you know most of these retail except for fast food um and that that redlining of that that sort of you know that shutting out of whole consumer segments because black consumers are just they're they're stereotyped as you know unsavvy as that um they don't participate in various um sectors of of the market there are a lot of um you know, when you see these um consumer segmentation systems that sort of they try to describe consumer uh, profiles. So it's supposed to be using information that's more, you know, it's supposed to be richer than just, okay, what's the what's the income in the neighborhood? But it's supposed to be a very wholesome portrait uh, uh, or, you know, an integrated portrait of the kinds of things that consumers like to do. Oh, they like to travel. They like reading these kinds of things and whatnot. And black neighborhoods routinely get the most, uh, um, you know, negative and also very, they're, they're, they're negative and they're also, there's not a lot of distinction. Like you can see, you know, a whole area that has lots of different variation in income and culture and history and ethnicity, all of that just gets sort of flattened over. Um, and they're seen as, as neighborhoods that are not, you know, that are not worthy of um, a variety kind of kinds of retail. So it's not even the case that that kind of exclusion has stopped. So as the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, which is part of the Smithsonian, defines whiteness, it defines whiteness this way. Whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. Whiteness is also at the core of understanding race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white racial identity throughout America's history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. How visible and understood is whiteness in black communities? And conversely, to white people, how visible is whiteness? Well, whiteness definitely, I mean, we're seeing this right now in this moment is something that uh, is, yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not made visible. It's made to be just, uh, you know, white people are made to be just people. So there isn't an um, uh, there isn't an active attention to how whiteness actually operates. How you know what does that mean in in day to day American life? What kinds of advantages go with that? What kinds of uh, structural you know disadvantages does it does that impart on people who are not classified as white? And you know with fast food, you could see that you know when fast food. So the second generation of fast food that um, arose in the 1950s, and so this is this is all. These are some of the major chains that we know today: McDonald's, Burger King, KFC. Those those all came up in the suburbs in the 1950s, whereas um, White Castle and some of the other early chains started in urban areas in the 19 in the early 1900s, 1920s. So when they when they ar arise in in the 1950s, it was very it was a shift from fast food is kind of just you know, fuel for the working man kind of thing. To it became something where fast food was fun. It was um, it was you know a, a place for leisure. It was wholesome. It was a place for moms and kids. And in that construction, whiteness was central to that, but unmarked. So that you know, if fast food wants to, you know, wants to cater to American families, American families was racialized as white. Um, it was it was constructed as you know. Uh, suburban when those suburb suburbs were excluding black folks. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it was embedded in the very, uh, um, the very way that it uh, fast food was conceived and the way it was marketed. 
but none of that is made explicit. It's just sort of families, right? It, it's never said explicitly white families, obviously, but whiteness was the operating norm. Often when fast food spots do open up, there is a debate between those who would rather have locally owned businesses opening and those who, there's the other side that who are glad that anything has opened up in places where buildings and businesses have been vacant. Are fast food restaurants better than nothing or are they worse? Despite their exploiting ways, do they still at least provide jobs and at times give back to the local community in the form of sponsoring local events or organizations? Or are they simply, as you describe them, kind of another act of colonialism, of exploiting the locals and taking profits out of the community to go elsewhere? I mean, I think it's both. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's the unfortunate reality that, yeah, I mean, you know, it, when, like, so for example, if you say, is it better than nothing? I guess it depends what the nothing is. Like if there's, an, if there's, a, if there's a corner like fast foods like to uh, restaurants, particularly prize corner uh, uh, locations, like at a street intersection to capture the most uh, traffic. So if there's nothing on that corner and it's just a vacant lot um, where you know no, there can be no services provided to the community, um, yeah, fast, a fast food restaurant on that, on that corner is a source of jobs. It is a place for a snack or for a meal. You know, um, in the event that usually you don't see this so much in, in Central City, but you know, if they have the little play space, whatever. So like there certainly it can act as an amenity, but the problem is, is the fact that, yeah, why, why is it that that's the only way that those kinds of um, services can be, you know, can exist? Or what, what does that mean that the, the, the job market is so constricted that um, fast food is the source for you know, where, where a community is supposed to be trying to uh, uh, bolster its labor market. I mean, this, this is one of the issues is that, you know, the way fast food, for example, was offered to black uh, communities in the 1960s, um, particularly, you know, post uh, a lot of the urban rebellions was like, fast food was, was offered as this kind of panacea to urban unrest where it, so it's not, it's not getting to the real life and death issues that black communities were facing. Like, you know, including uh, uh, police violence, which was a number mo most of the time where um, was the the uh, precipitant for for the rebellion. So to then turn around and and offer you know access to burgers and fried chicken, that's not getting at what the community actually needs. Um, and you know the fact that the that unemployment is higher because of racism in, in black communities, the fact that fast food then can step in and and be a source of jobs. Well, so that's pointing to this larger problem that the fact that there's this ongoing need, and particularly when we know that those jobs, even though they're, you know, people need jobs, yes, but they're not with living wages, they're not with benefits, they're not, you know, so they're, it's not addressing the, the, the real uh, root, root causes that, that need to be addressed. And, you know, you can see in, in, in doing the research, like many of the Black franchisees who were opening these outlets, you know, many of them were were motivated to try to make a difference in their communities. But the problem is that the, you know, the actual uh, uh, franchise business, you know, is, is ultimately uh, going to come up short in many ways. And you point out that time varying racial narratives and stereotypes necessitated 
a changing posture and corporations melded with the racial currents, eddying around fast food's product image and the lifestyle it was meant to support. That lifestyle changed over time. Food for the working man, wholesome leisure for suburban families. But all the while, fast food acted to protect and serve whiteness, defending its sanctity and suppressing intrusions by black persons to the benefits it conferred. So do fast food restaurants in black communities, even those owned by black franchise owners, protect and serve whiteness? And if so, how? Do, does fast food always protect and serve whiteness, no matter the people working there, no matter the people who own that franchise? Does it always serve whiteness? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think so. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, the today, for example, today, meaning not literally today, but, you know, at this moment, um, a lot of this, the same struggles that I saw in doing this research um, around, you know, the kinds of inequities that black franchisees faced um, are still are still with us. So, for example, um, just I guess it was two years ago or three years ago, maybe now, um, a group of black uh, McDonald's franchisees um, filed a class action lawsuit um, alleging that they were facing a lot of um, the same kinds of issues that you saw in the 60s or 70s with the same uh, and, and into the 80s, but where black franchisees are redlined out of um, more profitable locations. Um, uh, out of uh, locations in white neighborhoods and really restricted in where uh, corporate would um, would give them new outlets. And so it, the lawsuit that um, makes those claims was something that franchisees were making, uh, black franchisees were making um, much earlier, decades ago, right? So that they, they were um, often saddled with uh, pro sort of problem stores as they were called um, they often described not getting the kinds of support they needed. And since the franchise model really relies on you're supposed to be buying into this, you know, sort of known uh, brand, you know, it's a, it's a large concern with, with, um, with name recognition and support and training and all of that, like all, all the things that are supposed to make it easier um, compared to starting your own business from scratch, a lot of that didn't actually bear out. Um, for black franchisees. And so they were, you know, many of them were brought to ruin uh, financially. So uh, yes, uh, you know, as you mentioned in uh, Coming to America, it's like this, this idea that uh, fast food can be uh, kind of the get rich quick, or even if not quick, but a get rich scheme. And um, at the end of the day, that's not necessarily true. And so I think it relies on, um, you know, it relies on this idea that um, everything works equitably, but like anything else in America, it, it doesn't. So um, I think there's always going to be that tension between the aspirational goal and, and what actually happens. And you mentioned that over the course of the 1960s uh, came black men, franchisees, predicated on fast food corporations' fear of urban rebellions and the federal government's infusion of money into minority franchising. Black franchisors also entered the fray uh, as celebrities lent their names or their time to new enterprises meant to empower black communities. Black folks refused to go quietly into a fast foodless night, seeing in the enterprise a means to economic opportunity, political empowerment, and community development. Fast food elicited diverse responses from black people as consumers, political activists, and owners, but they are best summarized not as the pursuit of leisure, 
but as a battering ram to topple structural inequalities. Were fast food chains then in the 1960s when they did become accessible to black franchisors? Uh, were fast food chains meant to pacify black communities that had witnessed uprisings against racialized police violence in the 60s? Was this a, a market solution to inequality as well as racialized police violence? Absolutely. I mean, so I mean, there are, so there are two things there. The, the black franchisees who were joining uh, the existing national brands like Burger King and McDonald's and so on. Um, and then there are the black franchisors who set up their own, their own chains. So Brady Keys launching All Pro um, and uh, um, uh, what wasn't it? I'm totally blanking at the moment. Um, Mahalia Jackson, you know, lending her name to uh, a the fried chicken restaurant. So there, so there are two different ways black people were entering the industry, either as franchisees or franchisors. From uh, as franchisees, initially, much of that participation was corporate being worried, yeah, about. Uh, unrest in, in cities and also secondary to white flight, you know, sort of, um, you know, McDonald's uh, executives were described as being quote unquote bewildered by the fact that they were now in neighborhoods that had turned black, right? They were initially white. Um, they turned black um, secondary to post uh, to uh, white flight. And so now the restaurants found themselves having to serve communities they didn't intend to and, and, um, and in a in a you know sort of pitched uh, climate that they they weren't um, prepared for, and so having black franchisees in those spaces um, was kind of kind of a you know it was a way to put a black public uh, public face on on the on the operation and try to you know soothe any um, unrest contestation around uh, um, the kinds of uh, entrenched inequalities that black neighborhoods were were contending with. On the other hand, you had black franchisors like Brady Keys, who, again, motivated, you know, by an, uh, um, an interest in, in trying to serve uh, black communities and in trying to provide opportunities, trying to, you know, in fact, make sure black franchisees had access to real uh, wealth building um, in ways that wasn't necessarily going to be true uh, with the major brands. But um, and so even though the intent, I think, is was different for the, for the two you know, the two streams, um, unfortunately, oftentimes the result was the same so that it wasn't, you know, the, the, the for, so for example, the franchisees who were signing up with Brady Keys, even Brady Keys himself had difficulty trying to get access to lending. Um, you know, the, the kinds of barriers that were, were so pervasive at that time, I mean, just because you were in fast food didn't, didn't make them all go away. And so, uh, you know, it ended up being a solution and, and a, this reliance on black capitalism it was a, it was a reliance on us on a strategy that um, ultimately was not going to be uh, effective. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I, I keep like I was down in. Uh, well, you're from Chicago, so, you know, this area, Bloomington Normal, Illinois, by Illinois State University and mm. uh, right along Veterans Highway there. They have put up this huge string of gigantic chain restaurants, food chain restaurants. And it has really harmed the central business district of downtown Bloomington, downtown Normal, They cause, because uh, nobody wants to go downtown anymore because all of the business is out by the highway. And that's where I've seen this un anecdotally noticed an explosion in fast food chains 
on new business strips that are often along highways outside the city center, usually moving business and shopping from downtowns to the fringes of cities and more accessible to those living in the suburbs. Are these? Do you think these fast food outlets are also exploitative? Is the issue not only that fast food is disproportionately exploitative to black communities, but is to some degree exploitative to every community? Is uh, fast food a site of exploitation for all, even though it is disproportionately exploitative of the black community? The the question about whether fast food is generally exploitative, I mean, I think for sure, you know, uh, Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation has sort of recounted that uh, in many ways in terms of, um, you, you know, uh, the environmental, the, 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 the production, the food production, uh, the labor. Um, and, you know, uh, Kathy Newman's book, uh, No Shame in My Game, um, also is a, that's a close uh, study of um, what, what working in fast food is like. So, I mean, there, there and then just the fact of fa- the way fast food operates as uh, um, many chains do, you know, kind of, you kind of think of it, you can kind of think of it the way big box um, stores operate. And, and in that way, yeah, they're, they're going to displace um, small local businesses or they're going to make it, you know, they're, they're able to, uh, to, to uh, set up operations in places where um, smaller businesses are not going to be able to do so. And the, because obviously they have, you know, this huge uh, war chest of, of capital that um, an, an individual just doesn't. But I think what I'm trying to get across in uh, in this book is how specifically um, fast food treated blackness and how it made um, it made inclusion in in um, in the fast food industry uh, for black folks. It it always made that contingent um, on on you know this notion of of blackness being problematic. And so you know whether that was um, you know constraining their access to where they could operate, whether it was uh, turning to black neighborhoods when, uh, w- when the suburbs became saturated or when it was uh, a result of the oil crisis uh, in 1973 and sort of realizing that in fact, like these kinds of highway you know, uh, locations were gonna, become, were gonna become an issue because obviously gas was more expensive, people were driving less and so it all what they had been courting all along of these long arterial roads in in white space suddenly now are not as attractive well we you have to go somewhere where are you going to get those where are you going to get the consumers that you're going to start losing black neighborhoods were were then seen as quote unquote a gold mine and so what what i'm really talking about is the exploitation that's specific to using black people to shore up a bottom line it, when that bottom line was faltering um, that had been premised all along on whiteness. We are speaking with Na Oyo Ekwate, author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation. Follow her on Twitter at Professor Kwate, K-W-A-T-E. You write that Julius Motal's project, First Meals, this is uh, First Meals, this is what freedom tastes like, depicted the first thing formerly incarcerated individuals ate upon their release. Offerings from fast food chains dominated. People eat fast food because salty, fattening, and sugary things taste good. First Meals reveals that, especially when juxtaposed against the sensory deprivation of prison, fast food can not only be 
deeply pleasurable, but can constitute an edible form of freedom itself. On the other end of the carceral spectrum, fast food also shows up as the final meal of persons condemned to death because prison food is monotonous, often cold, and of variable quality. Fast food, with the intensity of its flavors and its connotations of America, tops the list as the most requested last meal among Texas death row prisoners. When it is reported in the media that those on death row uh, ask for fast food as their last meal or prisoners request it as their first meal after being released from incarceration, those reports also often come with negative connotations no matter the race of the person requesting them, but especially if the person is not white. Why does fast food connote, as the media often covers it, some level of Backwardness, if you will, but not freedom. What What is missed when we do not see the choice of fast food by those on death row or those who were just released from incarceration as an attempt at or an expression of freedom? What do we miss in our understanding of fast food when we don't understand it as an expression of freedom? Yeah, it's really, it's quite something. I mean, fast food, the way it, it you know, so, it's so... Um, it has so many balances to it. It's so, it's so, you know, it's so conflictual. It's like on the one hand, it, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, it can can actually be a kind of freedom. It, it, um, you know, it's it's endemic to so much about American culture. If you travel, you know, to other countries, like it's it's the iconography of fast food um, is so deeply connected to America, and yet it's also you know, seen as gauche and, and, and anachronistic and, and um, you know, the, the way those symbolic meanings change and fluctuate and, um, and a lot of that is, you know, has followed this, this, this uh, path, you know, and this, this um, course, it's, it, it has charted a, a long race as well, where, you know, um, you know, Black communities, when, when fast food, you know, for a long time in this history, this is a really important issue is that the demand for fast food was never, there was never voracious demand for fast food among black consumers. It just wasn't like people assume that if there's a lot of fast food restaurants in black neighborhoods, it must be because black people eat a lot of fast food. In fact, that has never been the case. There was never a time where they were clamoring to eat as many burgers as they possibly could. It just, you know, if anything, there were, there were, you, you see, you know, the industry sort of being stymied by the fact that black consumers would sort of treat it as a snack. They would, you know, stop in and grab something to eat on the go, but it, w- it wasn't a place you sat down and had meals. They weren't heavy users. Like, and so the industry kept trying to increase consumption and they kept putting more stores in. And then once, once the neighborhoods had become saturated, you know, by the nineties, then eating it actually became now a reason to critique black people for all their moral failures and why can't they control their diet and you know all of these things that just sort of slot into all the racial tropes and stereotypes that pervade american culture anyway you know what i mean so it's like the fact that fast food can be both freedom and a a reason to uh to uh, critique someone for all their moral failings is really interesting that it can hold both of those kind of meanings like you know um it, it reminds me there in that the recent me, uh, movie, The Menu, which, you know, where the people are going to this really exclusive restaurant to get these meals, these really intricate meals with all these uh, exquisite ingredients and everything, this high-end exclusive restaurant. And yet at one point, you know, this is not a spoiler, but just uh, at one point a cheeseburger is served and you can see everyone, you know, in the restaurant. And then you as the viewing audience, like everyone is surprised 
that this cheeseburger appears in a context of such high-end, uh, you know, um, an exclusive foodie kind of uh, uh, restaurant. And you, and you see that the, the way that the cheeseburgers um, served it, like the portrayal shows us how how significant it is for the chef or for, for everybody involved. Like that, that kind of iconography of the cheeseburger um, is, is, yeah, it's just, it's just really freighted with a lot of things. It's with, it can range from being this kind of special, you know, simple American pleasure, or it can be a, a, a reason to uh, castigate, you know, communities for, for their perceived moral failure. So there's just so many stuff. It's fast food being, you know, the closest thing to a national meal means that it's, it's invested with all this other stuff, all the baggage um, that comes with stuff in this country. So do you think of it, it when you say it's uh, uh, the American meal, the national meal, what do you think outsiders, people elsewhere, what do you think that that reflects upon the United States when we have these multinational corporations like McDonald's that uh, exports fast food to the rest of the world? What does that symbolism of American fast food being the American national cuisine how do you think that that is perceived by outsiders, by people in other countries when they see our national cuisine, not like in France where it's croissant or bread or whatever it happens to be? Uh, what do you think it reflects to the to outsiders of the United States when our national cuisine is exploitative fast food? I mean, so, you know, Sidney Mintz talks about this, is that cuisine is, is something that's, a, you know, inherently regional and specific, um, you know, even even if you look at France, you know, there's not just an overall French cuisine there, you know, it very much varies by region and so on. And and I think what fast food does is it kind of the way the way it's it's um, marketed and um, promoted abroad is really with this kind of, you know, there's, there's just this sheen of 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 abundance and sort of, um, um, you know, simplicity, which I think. And, and lack of complexity really more more than simplicity I think is is like which unfortunately is um, a lot of the way it's a lot of sort of the way America uh, wants to see itself meaning that 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 is this idea that things are like uniformly sort of good and also just you know that they're just not wanting to to look under the surface and not 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 textured, you know what I mean? Like fast food is very simple. It's just it's greasy and salty and sweet and it tastes good, but it's not you know it's not it's not textured. I I, I think I think the way for fast food is portrayed abroad is is as a marker of just Americana, just like this you know overbearing kind of. Um, USA, you know, kind of notion that doesn't, it, it just sort of elides the complexity of the struggles of, of what under, you know, undergirds how fast food has been produced, you know, how, what kind of impact it's had on communities, like that all is just sort of uh, shorn away. I think it's really just more about happy, this notion of, of happy American uh, life that really doesn't exist you know, w w without complexity, but that's the way it's portrayed. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's just like the United States. It tastes good, but it's horrible for you. <laughs> 
So uh, often fast food is chosen because it does not, co- you know, by the consumer, because it does not cost much, is fast, quick, convenient, and as a substitute for spending time cooking. Is fast food then a reflection of American society as underpaid and overworked? And as fast food is disproportionately found in black communities, is it a barometer of a community that is underpaid and overworked? I mean, fast food is definitely the the, the way it has always um, the way it has always uh, marketed itself. You know, in, although in, in diff- with, with different kinds of messages, but yeah, was for convenience for for workers jumping off of streetcars, work walking to work, for moms who want to you know uh, a night off from cooking in the kitchen and a quick place to take the kids for fun and and now um, definitely it has that kind of. Um, it's, it's just, it's a, it's more about the convenience. Um, and it's a, it's a way to solve a problem of needing to eat at the moment and that that's something you can do, but it's also not only that, I mean, the, the new, the new generation, if you want to call it the third generation of fast food of, of like the Shake Shacks, are, you know, for, it's neither cheap <laughs> nor, you know, uh, meant to be, uh, sort of utilitarian, right. And it's, and it's much more about a new urban affluence. Um, which is predicated again uh, primarily on whiteness and and the return to cities. But so it reflects, you know, many of the things. It, it's convenience, but it's not only convenience. I mean, because it it doesn't only. It's not meant only to be that. Um, it depends where you know what kind of restaurant it is and where it's located. That has a lot to do with um, the you know what message it's really it's really giving out. You write that the ways fast food operates, controlling territory, running product to segregated markets and extracting resources, has required local and national infrastructures of racial catastrophe. That catastrophe includes, but is not limited to, an American imaginary that holds blackness as a contaminant that despoils the sanctity of white life. Continual turning to market-based solutions for apartheid, racial narratives about deviant black consumption and social structures that sort black people into an America distinct from their white counterparts at every turn. So is blackness as a contaminant that despoils the sanctity of white life, is that at the heart of white supremacy? Because I've never heard it described that way or written about in that way. And that is a very powerful way to describe white supremacy. So is blackness as a contaminant that despoils the sanctity of white life? Is that the heart of white supremacy? I, I do think that's a way you can put it because it, it, you know, it isn't, I mean, so Cheryl Harris talks about whiteness as property. Um, you know, whiteness operates in, in so many ways that, um, that rely on blackness being antithetical or, um, you know, um, to, to, um, to just, you know, whether it, whether it's actual, actual, you know, uh, um, the way neighborhoods are constructed and the actual, uh, ways in which we value property or the way right now, the way we're, uh, uh, we're seeing a a right-wing push against what kinds of curriculum and what kinds of history we think, we think, you know, um, people should be exposed to, um, you know, and so all of that, all of the, the ways in which blackness is made as, um, you know, an antagonist, as a, as a, um, as a, as something to be defended against, as something to, um, you know, um, suppress, 
um, and the way, and so when, when, when it came to fast food, the way it, it acted as a contaminant, you know, I was trying to argue that you, you see this, you know, you, you would see it in the way fast food in the early years talked about, um, talked about hygiene. Um, fast food was made as um, something that was meant to counter the kinds of, um, um, you know, unhygienic food practices that were seen at the time. And so, you know, in a very literal way, blackness was made as antithetical to to hygiene. And so, you know, in that way, it was acting as an actual contaminant. But I think more broadly, yes, I think um, we've seen over the course of, you know, so much of this country's history that white supremacy and, and, this, and this foundational um, notion that Black people can't be full participants in this in this society. Um, I think the way fast that you know fast food acts as a cipher for that larger that larger picture um, of the way blackness is constructed in this country. So, uh, do market based solutions work in confronting apartheid? And if not, why not? No, they don't. <laughs> and because they can't, they can't. There's no way. I mean, the the the, the apartheid is not. It doesn't, you, you can't, like, how can you solve the fact that you may lose your life for appearing in public with a market-based solution? You can't. So you also point out that the competing tensions between taste, pleasure, power, and peril that govern fast food in carceral settings also extend to the heart of everyday society. As a cultural product with iconic status, the workings of the fast food industry intersect with national concerns and struggles around everything from housing to policing. And fast food shows up in pop culture and public discourse in ways that other everyday retail sectors, say laundromats, don't. So how does fast food affect policing? What impact does it have on policing or does policing have on fast food or their customers? Um, I don't know if I would say that fast food directly affects policing. I guess what I was trying to say is that um, it's the, the, the racial narratives and, and contestations that, that undergird fast food are the same kinds of anti-Black uh, constructions that that govern everything else. So, you know, um, and, and whether, you know, I mean, fast food has relied explicitly on, for example, residential segregation in the way it has cited its restaurants and how it has defined markets and so on. So, but that kind of institutional, that, that kind of systemic uh, racism that operates in, you know, all the country's institutions, you know, fast food is, is, is not immune to them. It's, it's part and parcel of them. You write that, but what you write, what about the black people who made millions off of fast food? Isn't, uh, they do exist. Isn't the entry of black business people into the industry, however late, and their uh, piece of a lucrative pie, a cause of celebration? You then quote uh, James Baldwin arguing, there is so much that's more important than Cadillacs, Frigidaires, and IBM machines. No, and precisely one of the, those things wrong with this country is the notion that IBM machines and Cadillacs prove something. People always tell me how many Negroes bought Cadillacs last year. This terrifies me. I always wonder, do you think this is what the country is for? Do you really think this is why I came here? This is why I suffered. This is what I should die for. A lousy Cadillac. 
So in your opinion, what's wrong with viewing the United States, this country, as one of conspicuous consumption proving your worth, as conspicuous consumption being the essence of what it means to be American? What happens when what it means to be American changes from being a citizen within a democracy to just being one who participates in conspicuous consumption? I'm sorry, Chuck, you kind of cut out there before. I, 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 missed, I missed some of your question. I was just saying, what's wrong with viewing the United States, this country, as one of conspicuous consumption proving your worth, as conspicuous consumption being the essence of what it means to be American? What happens when, instead of us be, being uh, viewing ourselves as citizens within a democracy, we view our greatest worth as that involved with conspicuous consumption? Yeah, it's a really dangerous proposition because it 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 sets us up for, I mean, besides undermining all, all of the values and all of the, 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 the you know, full participation uh, in a joint project of, of democracy that we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to be working on together to make consumerism and consumption the focal point and the, and the definition of citizenship. Indeed, I mean, this is, this is part of the, the major problem um, of how fast food operated with black communities because it actually has made, it, it, it meant that Black people literally had to eat their way, you know, into in, into this into the society. Like they had to. The only way to participate in in this market was to literally consume, like to eat, and to ha and so to have, you know, to make franchising um, the, the 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 means by which this community is supposed to to, you know, not only accrue, accrue individual wealth for the franchisees, but supposedly for the rest of this community. Well, but, but what does that actually mean then? If the if then how many restaurants have to have their have to be there how many and how many burgers do i have to eat so that my community can benefit you know what i mean so it's it sets up a very dangerous proposition that your worth is based on what you can consume and you know not just in the general sense of consumption of buying but in this case literally consuming eating you know eating these products and what that means for your health for your body for what for for everything so i i just think that it's it's a it's a failing proposition. It's one that people can, can cannot cannot be empowered, um, and they and they can't. Um, there's there's never going to be a way by which they can sort of prove their worth because there's always going to be um, black consumption is always pathologized regardless. So besides it being a failing proposition, it's not even one that history has shown would um, result in you know um, actually. Um, bringing the, the, the positive public regard that's missing otherwise. I just found it fascinating that, uh, you know, there's this racist history of fast food and it goes unrecognized. It's another aspect of American history that right now is embedded with a lot of denialism. And I just found that really fascinating. But you also I just want to make I just got two more questions for you. But I want to touch mm -hmm. on this one point that you made. You write franchising is a vehicle perfectly suited to carrying the myth of meritocracy, a fallacy that is deeply allergic to the country's racial realities. Americans want to believe that theirs is a country where success is equitably distributed to those who evince hard work, pluck, and perseverance, and that the country runs on the dogged pers pursuit of professional success that only comes from delayed gratification. Fast food's unmeritocratic system was a barrier for all franchisees, but especially for black laypeople. So just 
because I just want to make sure that people understand this. How is fast food anti-meritocratic? Because it doesn't. So the way, um, boot, you know, sort of fast food boosters talked about franchising in its heyday was that, you know, really just any average person with, and in fact, people with no experience, you know, was it was really the the selling point. People with no experience could could actually enter this industry, you know, be, um, uh, get buy a franchise start their business and and be on their way and you, you would see time and again these different kinds of you know uh, case studies of people who struck it rich and how it's you know it was possible if you just worked hard and you really committed um to this business but the reality was besides the fact that you know it required the, the, the kinds of things that it was requiring i mean unless you happen to have all this you know piles of cash that you need to to actually start up which in itself, obviously, for structural reasons, black people are are not going to be as likely to have that access to that kind of thing. Then you have to go to a bank and you have to get a loan. Well, we also know if you're trying to go to a loan, you're going to be more likely to be denied if you're black. Um, and then just every step of the way, I mean, e even the even the black um, franchisees who who were able to prosper, many of them, you know, were actually elite anyway. They it wasn't necessarily there, there there are some yes but by and large the people who had access were already you know um they were they were already not just affluent but well connected and and so like the the kind of the circulation of um access to franchising wasn't just everyday people um and you know even when like ray Kroc started his his, his franchise in Des Plaines, the first one you know, here outside of uh, Chicago, you know, the next group of people that he started to bring in were guys that he knew from uh, the golf club that he belonged to. And so like the kind of the, the ways in which like, it, it's like anything else, like things circulate through networks the, and networks are segregated, um, you know, racially, socially, by class, like all of those things are built, in, were built into uh, franchising. And so it was never the case that anyone just, you know, the, the way Ameri uh, Americans conceive of everything in the country being a meritocracy, I mean, it's a really deeply embedded cultural value that people are really resistant to challenging um, this notion that anyone through pluck and per perseverance and can pull them up, pull, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, and, and you see that, that ideology, you know, pervade fast food, but it's something that's so endemic to just how Americans think about day-to-day -day life and, and opportunity in this country. So um, yeah, it was, it was something that was very evident in, in this history. That leads me perfectly to our final question. We have been speaking with Na Oyo Equate, author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation. She's also author of Burgers and Blackface, Anti-Black Restaurants Then and Now, as well as editor of The Street, a photographic field guide to American inequality, which I really want to check out. You can follow her on Twitter at Professor Equate. Uh, one last question for you, Na Oyo, and I, I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. I think the audience is going to hate your response because, well, let's just see. You write, fast food's promise was always to the America that America thinks it is. How much 
does fast food contribute to the myth of American exceptionalism and innocence and the whitewashing of and denialism of U.S. history? How much does fast food contribute to American exceptionalism and the denialism of American history? I mean, over its long history, it really has been, you know, it's like I say, it's become, you know, iconic uh, uh, in pop culture and in, um, you know, in what uh, America exports culturally. Um, and I think it's, it's um, yeah, it, it, it's made sort of the notion of the good life, quote unquote, that we think uh, is what characterizes uh, American life, which avoids you know, any, any attention to inequality, any attention to, um, to struggle. Um, and it's, and it's made this sort of, you know, this kind of fifties notion, uh, of what, uh, American, American life was and, and which was really a white American life and what everything that that entailed, it's made that sort of, um, symbolic, um, of this meal, of this uh, kind of as as a way of life, as, and a kind of uh, yeah, kind of a symbol of you know, um, I guess the, the the prosperity and the sort of um, the cultural, the sort of the cultural myth around um, America as a place where um, where there's no where there's no um, where there are no barriers, where there are um, yeah, where there are no barriers and where there's just, you know, life, life can be, um, life can be free of any kind of, uh, inequity. It's just, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to put into words, but I think fast foods, uh, fast foods marketing and sort of construction of itself and, uh, and of America are, are, are part and parcel. They're kind of, um, they both, they, they both, Fast food is both reflective of and uh, a, pro a producer of a notion of American exceptionalism. It's both producer and reflector. Yeah. Fantastic answer to the question from hell. Naoyo, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. This is a fascinating topic. And again, your other books include Burgers and Blackface, Anti-Black Restaurants Then and Now, as well as being an editor of The Street, a photographic field guide to American inequality. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. It was great. It was great being here. Thank you. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And boy, do I love the concept of fast food is colonialism. If what you just heard from Not Oyo on fast food being racist, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Friday at 10 a.m. I should say it will be played live on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support Dan please remind us what is this week's question from Ellen share with us some of our listeners responses so far it would be my sincere pleasure this week's <laughs> question from hell is who would you like to be in to who would you like to see indicted and why over at Patreon, Andrew says, I'm more of a sativa guy. <laughs> He's talking about indica. <laughs> you know, you, you can tell the difference because indica means you'll be in the couch. 
I've heard it said. Yeah. I've heard that said. Too. Have you? Yeah. All right. Little drippy dudes, as I like to call them, says Washington State Cannabis and Liquor Board. That's who he'd like to see indicted. We demand artisan buds and imbibing until 4 a.m. All right. He says. All right. Uh, Riley D. over at Facebook says the sun. Is a very goth answer. <laughs> Without it, they continue. Society's problems would vanish. Plus, that smug bastard just keeps burning my skin. <laughs> Neil C. Uh, one of our favorites answers: Everyone who drives faster than me, and everyone who drives slower than me. <laughs> I can relate to that. Nick A. Kissinger because duh. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Mark A says the Hamburglar. Lock him up. <laughs> Over at Twitter, we've got Frack Lou Elmo who says whoever decided to pronounce indicted like that when it is clearly spelled to pronounce it uh, spelled to pronounce it indicted, which I think some of our other respondents maybe uh, were laboring under that miss. Apprehension. It reminds me of a friend of mine who, instead of saying intifada, he would say infant tada, <laughs> which I thought was great. Kind of like uh, some sort of malevolent Taco Bell dish. <laughs> All right. We got Ahmed, Ahmad S. who says, Tom, who's the child who ran into me. So uh, Ahmad wants Tom, this, this little kid indicted. Tom, the child who ran into me in the checkout line, or the check-in line at the Amsterdam airport and made me drop my snack, losing the chance of a free upgrade to business class to the person who passed me in line as I was cleaning the mess that this kid created on the floor and mm -hmm. fake smiling to his mom as if this was okay. Wow. Vengeance is justice. Yeah, Ahmad's going through it. <laughs> I got a few answers over at Discord. Uh, exe0422 <laughs> is indicting. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a malware. Uh, he's indicting, or they are indicting the girl reading this. Don't know. All right. Uh, Marks and Sparks answers my parents for giving me male pattern baldness. <laughs> the gene. Uh, my hair started falling out at 18. And finally, Uradov answers, God. <laughs> on one, count it one, count of creation. Get him, Rudo. Wow. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, naughty, nauseous, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On April 11th, 1968, 55 years ago this week, in West Berlin, the German political activist Rudi Dutschke was approached on the street by a man who called him a communist pig and then shot him in the head. Dutschke, who had grown up near East Berlin, advocated a radical democratic socialism that claimed inspiration from both Marx and Christianity. Marx and Christianity in the same sentence? That's blasphemy! Unless you actually read the Bible and noticed that Christ is a straight-up commie attacking money changers and feeding people for free. Dutschke was claiming inspiration from both Marx and Christianity at a time when German students were protesting against the complicity of their parents' generation in the still recent Nazi past, but also when religious belief and practice amounted to an implicit rebellion against the officially atheist power structure in Soviet-dominated East Germany. So claiming inspiration from both Marx and Christianity was probably not only pissing off Christians, but lots of Marxists as well. 
1961, Dutschke was fortunate enough to have moved from East to West Berlin just before the surprise construction of the Berlin Wall. There, he pursued studies in philosophy and history and quickly became one of the most prominent German student activists, critical of political institutions on both sides of the Cold War. Never a position you want to be in because then both sides will hate you. Very used to that position. By the late 1960s, along with his wife and fellow activist Gretchen Klotz, a German-American originally from Oak Park, Illinois. Dutschke was leading large-scale protests against the Vietnam War and against the U.S. and NATO military presence in Germany, while also advocating German reunification and calling out sexism and misogyny among male-dominated radical left groups. In other words, Dutschke knew this is hell before I was even born and long before our show ever started. But in an, intense, in an intensely polarized political climate, Dutschke's Positions and arguments made him many enemies, and as his notoriety grew, he became the target of verbal attacks by conservative politicians and in the German press. Finally, on West Berlin's Kurfürstendamm, a high-end commercial strip roughly analogous to, you know, Chicago's North Michigan Avenue or Los Angeles's or Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive, he was shot three times by an assailant with ties to neo-Nazis. Dutschke survived the shooting, but afterward he was never the same. Plagued by seizures, brain damage, and physical pain, he gradually moderated his political activity. Though he was known to express solidarity with the goals of the radical group known as the Red Army Faction, or Bader-Meinhof Gang, he tried to distance himself from their violent tactics while embracing environmentalism and helping to found the German Green Party. Who knew? And after he and his wife were denied residency in the UK, they settled in Denmark, where in 1978, at the young age of 39, Dutchke suffered a seizure while taking a bath and drowned. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth. A few more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The people who weren't there. Sitting at the Seder table alongside three women, a movie star, a small business owner, and a landscape architect, I eavesdropped on their conversation as I ate my matzo ball soup. And the businesswoman mentioned that some of her workers took time off when they had their periods. She could understand it in the case of one of them who had a medical condition that caused her immense pain and discomfort, but the practice had become habitual among workers she wasn't sure required it. All three women began chiming in about the virtues of pushing oneself past one's perceived limitations when feeling unable or reluctant to expend the effort to accomplish something, particularly something athletic like Waking up for a dance class at 6 a.m., or dragging oneself to the bathroom after an insufficient night's sleep, or exercising past the point of pain or exhaustion. They lost the thread of the workers wanting time for themselves, but implicit behind all this self-congratulation for being such 
tough, rigorous women was that millennials these days didn't want to do that pushing through limitations thing. I was thinking, how do you know that they're not pushing themselves in some other arena of activity unrelated to their jobs? Because being a waiter or a bartender or a member of a kitchen staff might not necessarily be their passion. That might lie elsewhere. And when they're taking time for themselves, they may not just be groaning with cramp pain, but might be using the time for a purpose of which you are entirely unaware. I didn't say that, of course, because all three women were, by common standards, far more accomplished than I have ever been or ever will be. And it is well known that my political doctrine of non-excellence, non-participation, and non-achievement has put me in the precarious economic position where I now find myself. I did take the opportunity to praise napping, though, but it brought home how misunderstood my calls for a universal work stoppage was destined to remain. It also brought to mind Gayatri Spivak, the Indian feminist literary critic, and the concept from Gramsci of the subaltern, about which I understand very little. The subaltern, as the notion has developed from Gramsci through Spivak and now through my misbegotten filter, is anyone or anything who is left out of the assumptions of a given discourse by virtue of their power inferiority. So much less are they than the selves discussing themselves that they don't exist enough to speak or even to have what they might say, if they could, considered. Discussions of ethics and morals in dominant circles tend to be carried on as if the dominant circle were the only group that matters. Left out are the lesser people whose voices can be ignored simply because they don't appear in the territory under consideration as its map has been constructed. The subaltern is an unacknowledged part of the landscape. The workers under discussion, for example, are not thought to be doing something else valuable in the time they aren't at work, they're simply not at work, which means they don't have a material existence on the map the boss is looking at. The map the three women were looking at was a geography of where they felt these people who weren't living up to what they considered the noble or correct or fulfilling goal should unquestionably be. The goal in life is to be happy. One does what one needs to do with passion. And what one needs to, what and what needs to be done is what these three women had decided were the activities necessary to achieve fulfillment. Spivak is a fan of Jacques Derrida, or has at least made expressions favorable to him, and deconstruction, because he interrogated texts to understand how they undermined their own assumptions. The deconstruction of a text reveals what the makers of the text are hiding from themselves. That's what I was doing to the discourse of these unwitting women conversing next to me, but I wasn't just the deconstructor. By feeling it necessary to keep my discovery to myself, I was also the subaltern, the lesser, the not included being, invisible and unheard. The thing about people is that they conjure the invisible into existence by ignoring it. There's an empty space where a questioning voice should be. Nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors me inasmuch as I am a vacuum. Therefore, I am the voice that the void in a three-way self-congratulatory conversation is doomed to conjure. Whether I speak or not is irrelevant. Just the fact that my questions exist to fill the void in conversational awareness is enough.
the questions take shape in the void, whether the questions are spoken or left silent. I don't know how much you listeners know about Passover. Nested in the Passover expression of breaking the chains of slavery is an eschatological wish expressed at the end of the Seder, Lashana Haba'ah Ve'Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem, was what they used to say back before Jerusalem became the capital of Israel, subject to ethnic cleansing to evict its Palestinian inhabitants. The Messiah, Mashiach, will come one day, announced by the prophet Elijah. So the rumor had it. The Seder table used to have an empty chair with a place setting and a kiddush cup, a prayer cup full of wine designated for Elijah. Should the time of Mashiach come during the Seder and the prophet come stumbling in and need a nosh of chopped liver or gefilte fish or even something more Sephardic like spicy lentils or whatever they eat. It was the movie star's first Seder ever. Everyone else at the table was Jewish. At one point in the meal, the movie star mentioned her ex-boyfriend, very much ex, had texted her that day. It was a text asking a favor. She said, I'm just going to ignore it. We all agreed that such a response was appropriate. I had met the fellow a few times and was not particularly partial to him. I said to her, you know, we have a seat reserved at the table for Elijah, which bewildered her because Elijah happened to be this ex-boyfriend's name. We Jews at her end of the table laughed and immediately let her in on the humorous coincidence. I don't think I've ever been to a Seder that's left a full-size place setting and an adult chair reserved for Elijah. Here it didn't even come up except as a joke. Not only was Elijah absent, he didn't even have a place to sit if he decided to show up, although I'm sure he could have we could have hastily arranged to accommodate him if he did. Also absent at a ritual meal to commemorate the Israelites rising up from slavery and exodusing from Egypt were the Palestinians who had been the victims of settler violence, vandalism, and theft back in the territories in recent weeks, as well as mosque desecration, beatings, shootings, and gassing from the Nagavnikim, the Israeli border police, or more accurately, the cruelty police, who didn't police cruelty, but used cruelty to police. This had been reported only the day before this first night of Passover. Although they were acknowledged fleetingly during a blessing that night, their suffering and the injustice of their mistreatment was far from adequately described, conjured, let alone understood. They were the true subalterns, and I would like to say I was holding a place for them, that I at least made a gesture of doing so, but of course it was as if I had done nothing at all. After all, who am I to tell their story? I can only point in the direction of the breeze that whispers of the storm churning far away with a breath almost depleted of force by the time we celebrants feel it on our well-fed cheeks. The well-off went on congratulating themselves, I among them, ever confident in their self-definition as authors of their own destinies, while the voices of the subalterns, at least on a conscious level, blew past unheard. This has been the moment of truth. Uh, 
Yeah, good day. So, Jeffy, we have some breaking, very hellish news. As reported about 20 minutes ago by CNN, a massive fire emitting toxic smoke from an eastern Indiana recycling plant described by the city's mayor as a known fire hazard was for, has forced evacuation orders for about 2,000 people as the battle to put it out is expected to drag on for days, city and state uh, officials yeah, yeah. said. Plastics were among the items that started burning Tuesday at the Richmond, Indiana plant, and the smoke, a thick black column that rose from the site, is, quote-unquote, definitely toxic, Indiana State Fire Marshal Steve Jones said in a news briefing. There is a host of different chemicals that plastics give off when they're on fire, and it's concerning, Jones said Tuesday evening, adding he expects the fire to burn for days. City officials were aware that what was operating here was a fire hazard. This was a fear for us, said Richmond Mayor Dave Snow on Wednesday. Well, this is kind of the plot of that movie with uh, Adam Driver and and uh, Greta Gerwig, whatever that was called. Oh, White Noise. There's a black cloud of toxic smoke in that movie coming over. And, and they're like, oh, it's not going to get to us. Oh, it'll never get to us. Oh, oh, it's here. We're all evacuating. And I don't know if you saw it. No, I did not. I thought you were going to say it was some Star Wars movie with Adam Driver in it. <laughs> no, he's uh, he's noticeably untrim in this particular one as he is playing in like a middle-aged professor early middle-aged professor white noise huh white noise not i you know i wasn't crazy about the film there were good things in it but it's interesting that this cloud of interesting it's awful (laughs) that this cloud of toxic smoke is hovering uh, somewhere where like near the near the bottom of lake michigan yeah uh, richmond indiana is a little bit farther down towards like uh, uh indy indianapolis even a little bit farther south uh but uh, still you know this is it's the horrible it's part about it it's air. right by it's right by kentucky it's right by you know tennessee it's right by that <laughs> seems like every natural disaster lately or unnatural disaster i should say all well, right at least Jeff. a train didn't crash that's what I'm saying. Like, it's right by Ohio. Like, it's the exact same area. It's right by the, well, uh, close to the Ohio River, which was just polluted by the East Palestine, uh, you know, train wreck. So, oh, yeah. this is just a nightmare again. Yeah, well. well, Chuck. Until next time. Well, you're, you're, you're up against the clock. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time, what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, do you want to share with us any more answers to the question from Hell? Yeah, we got one in Under the Wire. Sweet. To uh, the question from Hell, which is, who would you like to see indicted and why? Essel Smith, Essel S, says, as Nick A has already taken care of indicting Kissinger, I'm going to indicate Kissinger. (laughs) All right, then. And that's the last one. And who's coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell, Dan? Tomorrow we're going to have on Catherine... Jan Ebright, who serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program. Uh, She authored the study Secret War, in which Catherine explains how security cooperation programs have led U.S. forces into unauthorized hostilities alongside foreign partners. So if you want to know why there is a forever war, you will be learning that on tomorrow's show. And not only is it a forever war... It's a secret forever war. And now some breaking news related to the show. You all know that producer Lindsey Gorey has moved on from the show and that This Is Hell is again looking for new producers. And who knows, 
maybe our new producer is you. But yesterday we also got the sad news that uh, producer Dan Hill, who's been producing today's show, has notified us that he can no longer work on the show due to other commitments that are far more important. And we wish Dan and Lindsay the very best of luck in their future endeavors. So how would you, dear listener, like to be a producer here on This Is Hell? If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to about 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Thursday each week, and believe in what we do here on the show, you too can be part of the crew. Specifically, we are currently looking for a producer who can cover Tuesdays every week, and with Dan leaving, we are seeking a regular Wednesday producer as well. However, our schedule is very flexible. The duties of a producer include confirming guests in the days leading up to the show and helping with logistics to put them on air. You also uh, do a guest sound check 15 minutes before airtime, run the board during the live stream and recording, following the show, producers edit whatever is necessary, post the show on all our social media platforms, back up the show on our external hard drive, and finally, prepare the show for distribution to one of our five media outlets. The whole process should take about three and a half hours. We also reward producers for their services, which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. You will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote and endorse. Do you already do a podcast, but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement, bedroom, or dining table? Then join us here on This Is Hell. If you're interested in joining us here on This Is Hell, email chuck at thisishell.com and tell us a little bit about yourself, why you like the show so much, what you actually want, and you know, so much so that you actually want to contribute to the work of doing This Is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This evening, we are having office hours. It's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think that happens downstairs at the bar downstairs from us where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Drop by, I'll give you a, sub, a couple of subvertising stickers, and for the first person who asks me, I will give you a copy of the book that we featured on today's show, White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation by Na Oyo Equate. This is a fascinating book, and oddly, very heavy. I don't know why, like physically heavy. I think it's just really high-quality paper. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Look around. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>